Emily Dilling, and this is the Perry Paysan Podcast. Today we're talking with two first-time authors about their recently released books on Paris. We'll meet up with Lindsay Tremuda to talk about her book, The New Paris, and then we'll chat with Brian DeFer about his book, Les Marchés Français. We'll also catch up with Chef Lise Cavan to talk about what's in season at the spring markets and answer a listener's question. Before we get to this episode's interviews, I wanted to let you know that this will be the second to last episode before I take a little break. I'm expecting a bébé paysan in June, and so I will be on leave for a little while starting in the summer. In the meantime, I encourage you to revisit or discover for the first time some of the past episodes, and if you have the time, to leave input, encouragement, or ideas for the podcast on iTunes or on perrypaysan.com. For now, let's get on with the new episode, which will kick off at Café Lustique with author Lindsay Tremuda. Lindsay Tremuda, who's just celebrating the publication of her first book, The New Paris, and did so at a fabulous party last night, which was great fun. Um, and I know you have a super busy schedule today, and you're headed off on a book tour. So thanks so much for meeting with me. And let's just dive in. Can you tell us a little bit about The New Paris, and also a little bit about what it was like finding someone who would publish it? So it's a, it's a very interesting question, because it's not, um, it seems like maybe an obvious one for people who live here, you know, how... <laughs> did this not exist? Because that's actually the line of questioning I asked myself, how did this not exist? Um, but really publishers uh, want the tried and true. They want um, maybe a slightly different version on uh, you know, a story that they've um, seen has done well for them. So when I was putting together the proposal, I really wanted to highlight the things that were genuinely different. And, you know, and that's actually where my agent who helped me fine tune the proposal said, you know, this really needs to be, you know, if we've seen all these chefs before in this, in, in, you know, in the same way, or, you know, they've been too mediatized or we don't know their backstory, then that's where you want to focus. You know, it really needs to be part of a, of a real narrative. And so that's sort of my starting point. And, you know, we put it together. She, she shopped it around to, to publishers and, you know, the, going to be completely honest, 11, I think she sent it to like 10 or 11 publishers and only one came back with the offer. And and the feedback was that this sounds super interesting, but we kind of want fairy tale Paris. And and my answer to that is sort of like, well, this is a, still a fairy tale. It's just, you know, a slightly different version of it. And, and all of those old monuments and all of those beautifully pristine things still exist and are still important, but that's not all there is. And so my goal was to try to show all of the people, because I mean, the people are really the the heart of this. Um, the the people who who are doing interesting things and who are trying to push the city into the capital it has sort of always been, but has never really owned as a role, you know. And so I think now it's finally like, no, no, you don't need to, you know, keep us in the past. We're not just a living museum. Yeah we're doing really interesting things that are uh, that would appeal to people on a global level. Yeah, I really hope that this book represents a tipping point in that attitude towards Paris and France because they think there's no lack of respect for the history and the beauty and the legacy of the city, but the history that's being created right now is being created by these people. And um, and I think also stories are really important to share. And like that's what how people who are coming to visit Paris can have a connection with the place, is understand the story of the people who are doing these things in the city and making the city a, a living place, like you said, not like a, a museum, but like an actual living place. One thing I really appreciate about your book is that it's such a survey of different like domains as 
as well. So how did you choose the different areas you wanted to focus on and what were some of the things that you learned along the way? So I wanted to, obviously there were a lot of changes in food. Um, pastry is a big fascination of mine and so I knew I wanted to include it but that's actually what took some of the biggest research because the evolutions are not quite so obvious. I think even to locals they might not realize, I mean they might say oh things have gotten maybe fruitier or they've gotten more uh, refined but beyond that you know speaking of techniques or actual changes I really needed to hear it from the pastry chefs and even the chocolate makers so so sweets was like um, was a, a surprising one because you know I really got to hear firsthand what was not so good about the industry you know 10 20 years ago um, which is just that things were not super well made you know we've always put pastry on a pedestal but according to these people who are actually making it everything was oversweetened, you know, some of the ingredients weren't necessarily all that good, maybe the techniques weren't super innovative, and so, you know, that that says a lot about something we don't even necessarily think about in, in great depth. So I wanted to, food was obviously a big component, but then in terms of drinking, whether it's, you know, coffee or beer, so much was happening and all at once, and so I wanted to just lay the foundation for that. And then, of course, shopping too, I mean, I'm not, I don't go into, you know, high fashion, um, but if we look at any street in Paris, there's so many high street brands that you see all over the world. Mm -hmm. So, you know, where are people going to go to find something that's really unique? And so that was really important for me to include as well. And then the last piece that I definitely wanted to include are all these changes even just in the urban landscape and, and how interesting it is that certain cultural centers have opened on former in former fringe areas of the city. So all of a sudden now you have people who can, you know, are drawn to Le Bassin de la Villette or even to Bois de Boulogne. You know, whereas as a tourist, you may not have ever really thought to go there. Um, so I just think all of these areas are really interesting. And yes, of course, there's a heavy dose of, of food talk, um, but it all links to cultural shifts that are bigger than the themes themselves. And I think it makes the city a lot more accessible for people because they feel like they have, through your book, a sort of personal connection to these places because they know the stories. I think you can so easily come to Paris and just like have a croissant anywhere and have it not be great or have an eclair somewhere because you feel like you should, or a macaroon because you feel yeah. like you should have that and it's not going to be that quality. And so by following your suggestions and these people that you've highlighted, you can actually have that sort of like French experience of just indulging in something that's thoughtful, well done, with good ingredients and done the way it should be. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, even in your book, you talk about the farmer's markets being sort of like, it's not all great. So I think people need to be guided and there's nothing wrong with that. And it's not necessarily the type of book. Um, it doesn't replace a traditional guidebook, um, but it's for the people who don't get that full story on like, okay, well, why has coffee been bad? Some people are like, well, it's part of the experience. So it's kind of funny that it's bad. You know, but there are people obviously who are like, well, how is this not a better thing? And if we can improve that experience for people, then you know they'll go home and be like, no, this is, um, you know, the city's so amazing. You have to discover it in new way, you know, in this new way. And I think you and I both have gotten feedback from some people where they're like, yeah, I didn't really find the food that amazing. And I'm like, where did you eat? And then you hear, and and you know, it's like it's understandable. And I'm sure we've done the same thing in other cities, but. I just feel like there's so much people would miss if they don't look hard enough. And it's right under their noses, so they really shouldn't miss it. It breaks my heart when I hear about people having a bad time in Paris, because I mean, I think we've probably been here about the same time, you know, and it's, I love this city, and it's really, it's just a shame to come here and not have a good time. And I think the irony is also, 
people being shy about saying the emperor has new clothes and saying that the, the coffee isn't good. You can, you can eat a bad meal in Paris. They're afraid that that's going to just totally take away the veneer of Paris. But actually, I think it can lead to a more like vibrant sort of tourist industry if people can come here and be like, I want to see the new Paris. I want right. to eat at these places. It's, uh, it's, there's this, this renaissance going on. But maybe there's some people you could highlight that have exemplified this sort of spirit of the new Paris. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you have... A number of chefs, for sure, who have done, you know, various things for their uh, area of French cuisine. So, obviously, you have Daniel Rose, the American, who, um, alongside Ignaki from Chateaubriand, and um, Yves Comdebord, who preceded all of them. Um, and, uh, you know, you've got Roman Tishenko from uh, Les Galopins, and all of these, these chefs who are sort of like, no, look, we're going we're gonna to do things our own way. And what I found really fascinating about talking to Daniel was that he highlighted that he came about around the same time as Inyaki, and they were both looking for restaurant space at the same time. And this was at a moment where chefs at their age, so they were what, like maybe not even 30, they were still meant to, you know, put in their time in these big, big, you know, illustrious restaurant kitchens. And here they are being like, no, we're going to go go out on our own. And that wasn't really done. And, and that I didn't realize to this extent that, you know, they were sort of pioneering something um, that I thought was sort of like, well, there are tons of young people opening restaurants, but yes, but not necessarily the same caliber of chefs. Obviously, what Daniel did with Spring is much different. It's very, um, you know, modern and um, everything changes constantly. And same thing with, with the Chateaubriand. They really propelled a certain generation. And then from there you had, you know, uh, Bertrand Gribault from Septime and um, you have Pierre Song, who's not necessarily directly from them, but, you know, came about after. And and all of it is very different and varied. And, you know, if you look at what <clears throat> what I love about what Pierre Song does is he really, you know, he um, is Franco-Korean and infuses different flavors and has introduced the Parisian palate to a lot of, you know, um, not just Korean, but other Asian flavors and spices and herbs and, you know, just kimchi alone. I mean, people didn't even know what that was. And so here he is incorporating it into his dishes and, you know, he had to tone things down at some points because it was too much for, for Parisians. But, you know, they, they've really opened people's eyes to what else is out there. So in food, you know, those are, those are some of the big names. But, I mean, in coffee, all over there are so many important figures. And in pastry, you can't deny the importance of Pierre Armé in, in what he sort of um, spearheaded. I mean, maybe even unwittingly, but, you know, he, he really made this colossal change in the, in the industry. And then from there, you have Jacques Genin, you have uh, Philippe Conticini, uh, all of these figures who continue to push boundaries in, in pastry. Um, so, yeah, it was, it's really tough to, to pinpoint just one figure because it's never just one figure, but it's, I think, an accumulated, it's a community of people. Um, and, and certainly in, in crafts, um, you know, there are millions of figures I probably didn't include, but um, you know I, I really appreciate the work of Usha Bora from Jamini, which is um, she she's Indian, um, has lived in France for like 20 years, um, and started a, her own textile brand. So the, the textile brand actually started before she had a boutique, and so she was sourcing materials, fabrics, and helping production for other big brands in Paris, but sourcing them from Assam, where she's originally from. And so she was working with artisans in her native region, you know, to, to get the best quality 
fabrics or, or you know, embroidery and, and everything like that. And so when she decided to open her own brand or her, turn her brand into an actual shop with, with products that she's designed, she continues to, you know, nurture these artisans in, in her region. And, you know, she does block printing and she you know, sources all the fabrics from there. And, and what's interesting about it is that there, there's a distinctly sort of Indian touch, but it also fits perfectly into this chic Parisian... Uh, you know, lifestyle universe, and and the two worlds really do go together. So you know, you might think, oh, Indian fabrics are going to be super rich and you know deep colors, but she she works with pastels. She works with you know, just everything is just super elegant, and so she's she's created something that's slightly different in a scene that has been that has leaned a little bit Scandinavian in recent years. So she brings something new to the table, and you know, through, on all fronts, there are just people who have they probably didn't realize they were making a big change. But they, you know, they've gone about their their business, and and the change has followed. It's really hard to pinpoint one person because one person leads to ten people to twenty people that are involved in a movement, and and so so it's hard to keep up with, which is great because it's great to have people that are inspiring in our community. Um, and so one way I think to is a really good way to kind of keep in touch with what's happening in Paris is your new podcast. Ah. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. I just got to listen to um, the last episode, which was great. It's about innovation in Paris, mm-hmm. but I see that you have covered a few different, I think you've had three episodes yes, so far. Yes, so far. So, um, so what's the plan for that and what can we expect from this new project? So I really wanted to figure out a way to keep the book going. Um, obviously, um, the, the movement that I describe is going to keep evolving. And, you know, it's sort of, the, the possibilities are endless for, for keeping up with it. And I, as you know, as a writer, you love writing, but there are times when you just want to, like, talk. <laughs> and my friend Alice Cavanaugh, who's my co-host, she came to me with the idea of, um, we both wanted to play with new formats and podcasting is obviously super rich right now and and there was nothing really you know the, your podcast there's Forrest with her cocktail podcast but there's not much in the travel space and and I thought like how is this possible so you know we, we came up with an idea that's obviously I mean very tied to the book and in the in the early episodes we're going to sort of um, spin off from the chapters themselves but then it's like anyone you know we can go anywhere with it and I think you know there's so many areas we want to cover and talk to people um, you know not everybody's going to be comfortable speaking on on a podcast uh, but but it's fun so far we've had Clotilde Soulier who's just absolutely fabulous um, you know and also I mean talk about someone who has insanely good linguistic skills so she comes on and I'm like are you sure you're French um, and and she's working on another book as well and so getting getting other voices involved because that's the whole point um, so we'll see where it goes obviously when I get back um, in May we'll, we'll start recording again you know talk to more people have you on when you're after the baby's born um, and, and, and talk about what's really happening here. Um, and, and hopefully, it, you know, even if there are a few things that people learn along the way, that's, that's all we can hope for. Yeah, great. No, it's a great project. Um, I think it really brings Paris to life in a different way and brings Paris to your, into your daily commute or whatever. Right. It's, a, it's a great medium for that. Um, so congratulations on the book so much. It's really beautiful. Like I'll put links up and everything on the great. on the show notes. But um, And I know you're heading off to the U.S. tomorrow, so this won't air in time for your book tour yeah. but I think you have some other maybe Paris events and yes. maybe you could tell people where they can follow you and mm-hmm. hopefully catch up with you and get a book signed by you and things like that sure so um, 
in Paris, I will be doing a talk um, at the American Library in Paris on May 10th, and that's at 7.30 p.m., and it will be moderated by Lauren Collins, who wrote the book When in French. Um, then on May 13th in the afternoon, I believe it's 4 p.m. to 6 p.m., I'll, I'll be signing books at Fou de Pâtisserie, which is a um, pastry shop on Rue Montorgueil in the second arrondissement. And then otherwise, I'll be around. <laughs> so if you come to Paris, you know, um, you can find me on... Uh, lostincheeseland.com there are links to my Instagram which is probably the easiest way to contact me that or on Twitter um, and you know I'd be happy to to, to, to meet anybody who wants to, to meet up so well thanks and congratulations again on the book it's really beautiful I know how hard it is to put a book together and it's really something that you can be proud of like and it's it's such a welcome addition to the tome of Paris literature and Thank I think it's so be much. such a resource for anyone who's a francophile check out our show notes for links to Lindsay's website and podcast as well as more info on upcoming events and book signings for the new Paris Every once in a while, we meet up with local chef Lise Cavan to talk about what's in season at the markets and how to make the best out of what we find there. It's a segment we call Buying Things with Lise. So I'm with Lise, and I think we're celebrating maybe our year anniversary of Buying Things with Lise. We were at Marche Bastille this morning after a lovely little breakfast at Ten Bells Bread. Um, now we're sitting in the sun on the quay of the Seine. It's beautiful and um, spring is in the air and spring fruits and veggies are at the market. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Start off with what's in season, um, how to pick out the best of what's in season and maybe some of your favorite things that are um, signs of spring and the warmer months to come. One of the products that I'm really excited about right now are asparagus because the moment that we see asparagus in the market we can tell that spring is on the way or that it's arrived and rhubarb as well. Those are the two first true signs of spring here in Paris, at least on this in this climate and something that we're really well known for in Europe are white asparagus and quite a few people have told me that they don't have the possibility to get white asparagus at home but if you ever do come across it please get it it's a gorgeous product and it's actually exactly the same as green asparagus so the only difference is that the white asparagus will never see daylight therefore the chlorophyll doesn't have time to form but it's exactly the same variety as the green asparagus. And what I recommend doing with the white asparagus is either poaching it, so you can, uh, or braise it in a little bit of stock, a little, little bit of wine, some butter, and uh, salt, until that they're very, very tender. And the best way to know if they're really nice and tender is to prick them with a knife. And if your knife removes without any resistance, then they're done. So the other product that I'm really excited about right now is rhubarb. And I really recommend that you try to get small branches that have quite a lot of color on them so that your rhubarb will stay really nice and beautiful. They can oftentimes be really fibrous, so you might want to cut on one side and then kind of strip it down so you're removing at least one side of the fibrous branch. And there's a really fantastic article that Christy Mucci has written on Sever magazine that features a recipe for a rhubarb onion chutney that I've made recently. And it's really, really delicious. So if you want to go check that out, Emily will yeah, link it. The link. But rhubarb is so versatile. We kind of use it for both purposes, mm. savory and sweet. So I'd really recommend that you check out the recipes and all the different uses that all the chefs are doing 
uh, with the ingredient on the sever article because some people are putting it in tamales some people are making tatans out of it um, you can of course make a gorgeous jam or a chutney it's a very very versatile ingredient I think rhubarb is something we see in French markets and, and we'll see um, maybe like in tarts or we'll see sometimes in French cuisine but I know it's also something that's used a lot in um, Scandinavian cuisine yeah I'm not sure if that's something that you grew up with more so maybe you're a little bit more familiar with it because I think it can be maybe an intimidating ingredient to work with because it kind of looks like big celery stalks and it's so beautiful but you're not really sure how to get to the heart of it or how to get the like flavors out of it so um, what were some of the first recipes that you grew up with like using rhubarb so just to give a little bit of a background my family is Danish heritage and growing up we would go to my family farm during the summertime and because Danish summers are much more crisp and cooler one of the first things that would be in the garden was rhubarb when I, when I was growing up you're right it was such a weird strange plant and you didn't really know what it was it was this red branches coming out of the ground and so my my grandfather, my great aunt, and my dad, they would all go and harvest the rhubarb out of the garden. And one of the recipes that we would always make, and my sister became queen of this later on, was a really gorgeous tart. And so you make a pretty basic uh, pie crust, and you can make the pie crust, par, par bake the pie crust, blind bake the pie crust, and then put green apples or any kind of apples you'd like but some that are pretty tart rhubarb stalks cut into about inch long pieces and strawberries and then you can cover it with crust as well if that's the style that you would like or you can leave it open or you can make a beautiful lattice whatever you prefer and bake that for about I think 30-40 minutes it's such a nice tart it is quite acidic so I like to pair it with a little bit of sweet cream to go on top but this is a classic recipe that we've always done at our farm in Denmark and I'm happy that you kind of started touching on this already because another thing I wanted to point out we were smelling everywhere in the market today was strawberries so any um, tips we had a lot of different we sell at different varieties and also a lot of different um, origins for the strawberries at the market so what would you suggest for people when they're picking out strawberries? Again, I know that this is something that um, the Danes excel at. I think the long summer days in Scandinavia make for probably some of the best strawberries in the world. Emily is right. We have the best strawberries <laughs> in Denmark. <laughs> I feel like as a French uh, French resident, though, I am hard-pressed to say that French strawberries are also absolutely gorgeous. Um, they're smelling beautiful. At the moment, they're coming mostly from Spain just because we haven't truly gotten into the hottest months of spring yet. But when you're buying strawberries, I really want you to look for organic strawberries. Something that's been called to my attention recently is that people are using extraordinary quantities of pesticides on their strawberries. And so if you can, please try to buy organic strawberries. You really want to avoid all of those pesticides. Another thing that I'd like you to keep in mind when you're buying strawberries is to buy them and consume them quite quickly. Never to keep them in the fridge either because that will dull their flavors quite a bit. So of course you can keep them in the fridge if you want them to last for a few days by all means. You do whatever is necessary and most convenient for you. But just so that you know, whenever you put any kind of fruit or tomato or even cheese in the fridge, the flavor molecules and the odors will calm down a little bit. So I'd recommend taking them out of the fridge maybe an hour or so before you're going to serve it. Perfect. Um, we have a reader question. 
So it's another um, question, I guess it's kind of two questions in one, uh, from a listener. So, Dear Pei Pizan, love your show. I was wondering if you and Lise had some insider tips on summer dishes I could serve at a housewarming. Hot tips on fromage would be welcome. Loyally yours, Kung Fu by Cheeses. Um, and you have a little inside info on Kung Fu. I know that he is a, an apartment dweller. He was just moved into a new apartment and wants to celebrate his um, housewarming, I guess, this summer. So does anything come to mind for like apartment cooking in the kitchen? I know barbecues come to mind in summertime, but maybe something that he could do to feed a group of people and celebrate his new home? Barbecue is such a nice thing, and unfortunately that can never happen in Paris because we are not legal allowed to however there's a really really good solution so you can definitely grill meat in the oven and maybe a really nice thing to do would be to make skewers and so you could grill some meat in the oven you can buy a really really lovely big piece of meat and then cut it into smaller pieces so that it will cook faster you can assemble them on the skewers and then put them kind of under the parboil you can broil your skewers you get some lamb you could get some chicken you could even do fish ones you could do purely vegetarian ones why not get some bell peppers, some uh, eggplants and some zucchinis. You could even get zucchini flowers and you can stuff them with goat's cheese and you could bake those very quickly or put them under the parboil as well just so they get a little bit of color. That's a really lovely treat. Something that I really enjoy that I've been making for years and I think it's probably become a party staple is goat's cheese stuffed dates wrapped in bacon. They're absolutely delicious, and I bet that the whole plate of them will disappear within five minutes. And of course, some berries. So why not get some fresh strawberries and coat them in some chocolate ganache and then let them harden. That makes a really lovely treat. Go heavy on uh, fresh springy drinks. That's also something that's really nice. You could make a uh, rhubarb syrup and you could make a sparkling rhubarb uh, gin and tonic. Why not? You could do a little cucumber gin and tonics as well, or black pepper gin and tonics. I've noticed that's become very trendy recently. And why not go really French? And you could get some lilé and do a lilé blanc, and you can put in some lemon juice and some sparkling water as well. And salads, really nice fresh salads that are pretty easy to eat. And it doesn't have to be a pasta salad. People often go hard on the pasta salads for their parties, but why not a little bit of um, just purely vegetables, you know, some radishes, some tomatoes, cucumbers, whatever is in season. And since you kind of brought up uh, a few recipes that could involve cheeses, um, like goat cheese, for example, for stuffing things, like, um, like the zucchini flowers, how would you go about choosing quality cheeses to use? Or if you want to do a simple cheese plate at a, at a party like that, um, how would you go about maybe assembling that or choosing the, the cheese that you would serve your guests? When you're looking for cheese, if you can, try to go to a standalone cheese shop. I know that that's not always possible because not everyone has a standalone cheese shop, but maybe there's a cheese counter in your grocery store and they should be able to help you trying to find the best age of cheese that you'd like. Keep in mind that younger cheeses are always going to be much more fresh and perhaps even a little less strong on the flavor depending on how young they are and that older cheeses are going to be a lot more nuttier, saltier, they're going to have a lot more character to them. So it depends on what your preferences are. When you're making a cheese platter for your party, it's always nice to have 
a few different styles of cheese and perhaps a few different types of milk so that you've got a really nice variety and you've also got a very visually appealing platter. What I would recommend doing is getting a little bit of hard cheese, a little bit of soft cheese, and perhaps something very unique like a washed rind cheese or a blue cheese, something that people might not be so familiar with. So they've got the familiar hard salty cheese, everyone likes those. You've got some soft cheese, some really nice spreadable cheese, that's always delicious. And then you've got a little bit of an anomaly, and so people have the opportunity to branch out if they'd like to. And what I really enjoy doing is piling that platter high with fresh fruit, dried fruit, um, perhaps some charcuterie as well. You could uh, assemble that in. You could really create a truly beautiful platter that's got all these different things. And it, it's going to be really representative of the season as well. And if you don't have too much money to be able to spend on cheese, I bet it will be okay to spend a little bit of money on a big bunch of grapes and that will make your platter look very voluptuous as well. Nice. Um, so wish you a happy housewarming, confused by cheeses. Um, happy housewarming. And if you have any questions for Lise to send in for an upcoming segment of Buying Things with Lise, we'd love to have them. You can email them to emily at peripaysan and we'll ask them in a future episode or segment. And um, thanks again as always for being here, Lise. Thank you so much. Happy spring, everyone. Check out peripaysan.com for rhubarb recipes from Lee's. And keep your questions coming. I'll be happy to get you an answer from Lee's on an upcoming episode. I met up with chef and cookbook author Brian DeFair at Pan Am Brewing Company to talk about his book, Les Marchés Français, and why Paris markets are important to him. So I'm here on the terrace at Pan Am Brewing Company with author Brian DeFair. Uh, it's a gorgeous sunny spring day in Paris. And we're here to talk about his new book, Les Marchés Français, which is a exploration of Paris markets with seasonal recipes that really take advantage of all of the bounty of France, of local producers and um, put it together with beautiful photos and insight into what life is like in France because Brian is a local chef and now cookbook author. So congratulations on the new book, Brian. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about your inspiration for the book and why it was important for you to include markets. Okay, thank you, Emily, for having me join you in this wonderful sunshine to talk about the book. I must also mention that... uh, I have a co-author named Pauline Bolt, who is responsible for all the photographs in the book, all the wonderful photographs. And um, it was she that came to me uh, a few years ago and proposed the idea of doing a book together. She had um, a template in mind, and uh, she thought it would be, well, she proposed to me that it would be a very simple process just to plug in some of my recipes into her template. But here we are years later, and the book is finally out, so it ended up not being at all like the process we thought it was going to be at the beginning. But um, we started discussing uh, what kind of a, a book we would like to do. And uh, for me, the most natural thing was to focus on the Paris markets. Uh, since 2010, I had the privilege of working with uh, a cooking school in the 18th called, uh, called Cooking with Class. And uh, the only classes I do with that school are taking, the, uh, taking our clients to the market, which is at the Marie of the 18th, and uh, whether it be the morning or the afternoon. And we, we go through the market together, putting together a menu spontaneously. 
and we uh, bring all the food back in our shopping trolley to the to the cooking school and we put together a starter and a main course and a d dessert and we throw in a cheese course of course as well and also I'm a private chef in Paris and uh, a lot of my shopping for the dinners that I do starts at the local markets so in both of my roles as a chef instructor and as a private chef I spend a lot of time in the in the markets so for me, uh, the way to start a cookbook was not sitting down and going to some kind of a, a professional kitchen and sitting down and hashing out what, whatever recipes might be missing from the French uh, cookbook uh, world, which is pretty much nothing because it's all been done already. But rather to be spontaneous and uh, go, go through the French markets at different times of the year and picking out whatever looked interesting to me as a chef putting together uh, spontaneously and based on daily inspiration, putting together uh, some fun uh, recipes that I, I didn't want to be too complex, just like with your book. I want it to be easy for the home cook to, uh, to uh, throw together. Um, but that's, that's why I, uh, my uh, key to the book and the essence of the book was, was starting with the Paris markets. Yeah, that's great. It's clear in the book and that really resonates with me. I think um, the recipes are really ex uh, accessible and you could see where whether you'd be teaching that to tourists who are coming to Paris and want to learn about French cuisine or presenting those in a book. They're really easy to hop into and I think very inspired by um, classic French cuisine, but also there's nice little spins and I think interesting pairings that you do with the ingredients that kind of bring new life to these classic recipes. Full disclosure, actually, we have cooking in class with in common. I'm friends with Yatendi and Eric, and write for their blog a little bit, and I um, love what they do. And I, I love the visiting a market and then cooking with produce format for a tour. Uh, another thing we have in common that I noticed uh, when I was reading the book was that the Moosewood cookbooks were really influential on you as a young chef, mm -hmm. um, and I feel like that also comes through in the book because you do really beautiful things with vegetables. Do you want to talk a little bit about how those influenced you as a chef and um, maybe how they continue? to be an influence? Well, some, uh, some chefs are influenced by meat and fish and, uh, and poultry, or uh, Michelin-starred chefs may be influenced by uh, the, uh, the deluxe luxury ingredients like caviar and uh, scallops and all that. And um, of course, there's been a trend in the last few years to um, find inspiration also in heirloom vegetables and forgotten or less used uh, vegetables. The idea is to also promote uh, biodiversity mm -hmm. and to ensure that in our food supply, we have the in the future we have the most uh, variety of, of vegetables possible. Now, since we're not creating new breeds of too many new breeds of animals, uh, and the the fish supply is being depleted in our oceans, and there's a lot of questions about the sustainability of cattle uh, for meat meat production, beef production. Um, so there's uh, many forward-looking chefs that, of course, for quite a few years now, maybe 20 years, have been focusing uh, on vegetables. All, some chefs, like me, simply find inspiration from all the color and variety and different textures uh, that are in the vegetable and fruit world. And uh, not, to, not to mention all the nutritional benefits that are in the uh, in that uh, in that world, so 
For me, I must say that uh, my inspiration for dinner parties or for cooking classes starts when uh, I go to the market and see which particular seasonal vegetables and fruits happen to be looking their best that day. And I don't get that much inspiration when I stop at the butcher and see he's got the same nice looking free range chickens as last week and, and the nice, I love cooking with duck, so he's got the same nice duck breast. So for me, the thing that really changes from month to month is the, the fruit and vegetables and that's what keeps it exciting for chefs and uh, passionate amateur cooks as well. Yeah, for sure. I think that is a huge thrill of the market. I just went um, and visited Marche Bestie the other day, and you could smell the strawberries. And it's just like that really, especially when you're in an urban environment where you don't have as much access to nature, the market can really be the sign of the changing season. You can feel like spring is here once you see that. And another thing, I was actually talking to um, a guest on the show, Lise Kavan, about some of her favorite seasonal produce for spring and asparagus was one that came up but also rhubarb and I was really intrigued by one of the recipes in your book which uses rhubarb in a more savory context which is the rhubarb laque glazed yes yes the glazed rhubarb pork um, which is a a recipe I can't wait to try for for lunch or dinner party with friends Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk about it's springtime now really feeling it today it's a beautiful day in Paris maybe you could talk about some of your favorite spring vegetables or recipes well, I, li- I like asparagus as well. When I deal with uh, American tourists coming over, they're usually most intrigued by the white asparagus because uh, that's less uh, easy for them to come across back at home. I was just doing a cooking class yesterday, private cooking class with, some, uh, with three uh, lovely ladies from Atlanta, and they wanted to do asparagus, and I tried to steer them towards the white asparagus uh, because for me it's more interesting. Uh, but they said they can't get it at home anywhere and uh, they wanted to do something that they knew they'd be able to replicate back at home so so we did we did some green asparagus after all but what I really like is the um, the extremely fat white asparagus I do a recipe in the book as well about that uh, that you can find from uh, from French farmers at this time of year Uh, if you're not looking closely in the markets you uh, we'll see that there's a lot of white asparagus that comes from Holland as well. And uh, nothing against our Dutch neighbors, but white asparagus is one of those vegetables where you can really tell the difference in the soil where the where the vegetable was grown. It's like uh, the difference if you go to a winemaker and he's going to explain to you his different wines and the different soils that the the vines were planted in and how the the soils really influence the outcome of the the minerality or the fruitiness of the wine the same thing ends up being true with with something like white asparagus so if you get the the cheaper white asparagus from from Holland at least the one that shows up in the French markets I'm sure they have a a good one in Holland too if you look for it it ends up being very thin and acidic and astringent and it's got a very kind of hollow uh, flavor and then you spend about twice as much money and you get the really fat white asparagus uh, from from the French farmers and um, if you cook that in the identical way suddenly you have something that has a much deeper flavor you taste the the richness of the soil and the sweetness to it and it's a it's a sweetness that balances the uh, astringency that you normally have in the white asparagus and and the only difference might be the the 
what's in the soil that's getting piled in uh, on top of this asparagus as it's growing. So it's, it's quite remarkable. My other favorite spring vegetable, which is which I like cooking with almost year-round, is uh, is artichokes, especially. And now we get uh, these giant globe artichokes. I like to take the trouble to uh, shave off all of the leaves with uh, with a knife and uh, scoop out the choke and then invent different fillings and uh, after I've poached the artichoke heart uh, in a vegetable stock then I then I stuff it with something and bake it in the oven and uh, so that's one of the vegetables I cook the most I think year-round is is uh, artichokes but I particularly appreciate it in springtime. Yeah that sounds delicious I've been craving artichokes lately actually we haven't had any show up in the Loire Valley yet but I'm keeping my eye out for them and so, and that's really interesting. I didn't realize the importance of soil on asparagus. So that's something I learned today. Um, and I think it's also another thing that's just a testament to how important it is to know the origin of where you're getting your vegetables. And I was wondering if maybe you can tell us um, some of your favorite producers or markets in Paris. Just I know that's probably a large list, but if there's a few that come to mind that you like. Well, I've got a, a few favorites. Of course, anyone who lives in Paris, uh, and by default, most of their favorites end up uh, evolving in a proximity to where they actually live. Uh, there's so many to choose from that usually there's no point going across the entire city just uh, because there's a special market on the other side. And uh, But my, my favorite markets have just uh, evolved um, based on usually where I uh, take my clients for cooking classes. So with the cooking with class, we go to the... Uh, the humble little Jules Joffrin uh, or Rue Puto market, which is actually a street market, not a farmer's market. And uh, so I've been going there since 2010, and, uh, and I know it like the back of my hand. I could go through there blindfolded and pick out my vegetables and, and meats and fish. Um, but as far as farmer's markets are concerned, I'm most often uh, doing the uh, Avenue Saxe, uh, which you mentioned in your book as well. It's my uh, favorite little... Uh, stops is about halfway uh, halfway down. There is a little producer of uh, mushrooms. I don't know if you remember that one. <gasps> yes, uh, yes. And they yes, have Noel. they have a few uh, different greens that, that are hard to find uh, elsewhere as well. And uh, then they have a few uh, potatoes. A few always a, a good uh, variety of potatoes. But the main thing I go there for is just they they always have the biggest variety of mushrooms, wild and cultivated. And uh, special greens like purslane that you uh, that are difficult to find uh, elsewhere. Otherwise, like most of the Parisian markets, a large part of Avenue Saxe is just the resale hawkers that get their food from Rungis. But as far as from a chef's point of view, what sticks out and gives me some inspiration to uh, put together interesting food, uh, I'm looking for uh, this. There's only one stand in the middle there that's that's got the greens and the wild mushrooms. Yeah, it's true. It's a treasure hunt, and I think also it's a balance of finding markets in, prox in proximity to where you are and finding the producer there that can supply you with the most local and seasonal products that you can mm -hmm. find. I think the book highlights that really well and also gives general ideas of how to go through markets, how to shop at them, what to look for, what kind of questions to ask and things like that. So it's a really great guide. I'm really happy that you did it. I love that people are adopting this 
outlook on Paris, like incorporating the shopping experience with your cooking experience. And so congratulations. Where can we find your book? How can we follow you to keep up to date with what's going on with the book and with you and, and just get inspiration from your photos and your life in Paris? Well, thanks for the, uh, the promotional side. <laughs> but um, my website is under reconstruction right now. Hopefully in the next few days it's actually up. And um, otherwise, for now, I'm just planning to keep my Instagram feed going. Uh, I like to, uh, when my guests aren't waiting too long at the table for their dinner, I like to quickly snap shots of the food that I'm cooking for them to give people a, a taste what a private chef is up to in Paris. And uh, sometimes my experiences at the markets or different uh, private apartments that are real little magical spots in Paris that I get to see and cook in. And then uh, besides that, we'll just have to wait and see for the, for the next book to come out. Yeah, well, we'll look forward to it. And we'll catch up again um, when there's in the next book. And in the meantime, we'll follow you. And I think we'll let all these hungry people at the Van Brewing Company get to lunch before it gets too loud. So thank you so much for meeting with me and talking about the book. And I'll include links to the book, where to find it, and where to follow you on social media. Okay. Thank you very much, Emily. Brian's website is still a work in progress, but you can find links to his Instagram account and book on the show notes for this episode on perrypaysan.com. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Perry Paysan podcast. Thanks to Lindsay, Lise, and Brian for taking the time to talk with me. And thanks as always to Ben Nero for the podcast's original music. I'll be back next month with a new episode. Until then, enjoy a springtime filled with French flavors and seasonal recipes.